Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. We're your hosts, Laurel Gurrier and Danielle Jackson. Today's episode features Priya and Harsh Gandhi. Their birthing journey was very different from what they had envisioned. Her vaginal birth would take a shift as her baby was having trouble descending. A surgical birth would be needed to bring their baby earthside. Priya shares that because of their upfront investment in educating themselves, she felt empowered to say yes and make decisions that were best for her baby and her. We are grateful to hear their journey today. Hello, Priya. Hello, Harsh. Welcome to the show. Hi, so, so delighted to be here. Thank you so much, first and foremost, for having us. Um, I'm Priya, and I have been married to my husband, Harsh, for more than two years now. Um, And, you know, not just are we new parents now, but, you know, we are a relatively new couple. We've been dating, uh, we we did date for about a year, uh, got married in the pandemic, uh, and then we had our son, Ovi, just a year after. I mean, you know, apart from work, there really wasn't anything else to do in the pandemic, right? Yeah, you know, not only was Ovi is Ovi born in the middle of the pandemic, but his name can actually be found in the middle of COVID. As funny as that is, uh, and we only realized that after giving him his name. So that's that's pretty funny. Uh, so anyway, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Harsh. Nice to meet you all. Uh, just on uh, just to expand a little bit on how we met. Uh, well, actually, that can take hours. So I'm just going to give you my side of the story. Um, so basically Priya kept showing up on my suggested friends feed on Facebook for almost about a year. Uh, we didn't have any mutual friends or anybody in common. Um, one evening, uh, being single and tipsy at a friend's wedding, I developed the liquid courage to, uh, message her and say, Hey, you know, how do we know each other? You keep showing up, uh, for the, for the, for the last 12 months or so. And she replied literally within 30 seconds, even though she lived on another continent at the time. And she was very enthusiastic, but basically told me that she'd known me uh, for about a year um, and he'd even met my parents a few times. Apparently, we were family friends and our families had tried to get us together in secret, but she was never actually introduced to me. So, uh, you know, it was very obvious that she kept uh, looking into my profile because she kept coming up on my suggested uh, friends feed. Um, so I thought she was stalking me. I mean, I, okay, I was totally stalking you. Um, You know, I think the Indian community might be well aware of like this concept of like bio data is floating around. So I actually got Harsh's bio data, his Rishta, um, when I was in Singapore. And at that point in time, apparently he had a condition of whoever he wants to be with has to relocate to the US. And at that point in time, I was like, who? is this American boy who has the audacity to say that his potential wife would have to move over with him. And I can't believe I eventually did just that. (laughs) You you definitely did. And, you know, Ovi and I are very happy that you came. Um, So about after a year of long distance, uh, which allowed for many awesome London and European travels. I was working in London at that point in time, eventually for four years. Yep. Uh, Yeah, after about a year of that, uh, Priya moved to California. And within a few months, we got engaged. Um, And within a few months from there, the pandemic uh, struck. So we were like, you know, let's just take the next step and get married. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree with that. (laughs) I love all of it. (laughs) I love all of it. Um, Long distance can be so beautiful. My husband and I were long distance for almost four years before we finally got into the same place. So I totally understand that. 
No, we, we, I was just going to say, we actually, in fact, had like a nice little competition when I was in London and he was here. We, we knew we wanted to be together and we almost were like, let's see who gets the best job first. And yeah, it was, I won. It was, it, it was, uh, we were lucky we were both in corporate environments. So we both had offices in each other's cities. I really wanted to move to London. She really wanted to move to San Francisco. And yeah, it was a, it was a very, uh, very positive competition, but I did lose. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had the pull of family. Harsh's parents live here. My sister lives here. So, um, you know, being now they live 10 minutes away from us. So it was, uh, it was definitely cool to have like the pull of family to bring us together. Let me jump back though. Does, um, Avi's name have a meaning besides being within <laughs> the strand of the COVID name, um, <laughs> does his name have a meaning? Yeah, apart from being in the middle of COVID, uh, <laughs> Ovi, his real name is actually Ovi Jan, um, and it does have a meaning. It means painter, craftsman, or an artist. And later on, we found out that his name also means um, a stanza of a prayer. So when you pray, there are all these like, you know, verses that you um, that you sing uh, or, or chant. And Ovi also means like one of those like stanzas within that. And we just thought we had no idea. And that is just so beautiful. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's pretty grand sounding name uh, in old school Sanskrit. So uh, we're really happy with the name. And I think he really likes it too. <laughs> that is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Well, tell us about your pregnancy. Let's get, the, let's get into it. Tell us about your pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, the pandemic continued a lot longer than anyone could have ever expected. And being stuck at home uh, with each other, nothing but wine and Netflix, uh, you know, one led to another. Uh, and we had a positive pregnancy test uh, confirmed late last year. Um, and oh gosh, the overall pregnancy was beautiful. Um, it was so special. It was my first pregnancy, uh, very unforgettable. And uh, I dare say hole in one for our show. <laughs> um, don't get me wrong. I mean, there were there were tough days uh, during the pregnancy, but it was overall, thankfully, very smooth. Um, because I had moved to California, we had family at our finger trips, uh, fingertips. Um, Harsha's mom, who I consider my mom as well, um, he she would drop us weekly packages of food, and oh my god, she would cook up a storm for us. Um, my sister Pallavi, who lives ten minutes away, would routinely drop by to make sure I'm all okay, set up, and you know we've been sisters for life, but I would say like the entire concept of sisterhood took a whole different meaning during my pregnancy because she has been through multiple of these journeys herself. And she was just so helpful in like the entire way that she was uh, working with me on this. Um, and so she became my one-stop shop on almost everything. My And my doctor covered me for everything else medical. So in terms of trimester, I would say first trimester, no nausea, touch wood, like, you know, it, it so happened. I did have lots of fatigue. Um, it definitely helped to be working from home. So very grateful, um, you know, in having an employer and a manager for providing me the best support. I would say, like, in retrospect, like, if I could give some advice to women out there, like, uh, if you know your intention is to be a mother one day, um, find employers um, that have great culture, find managers that have good ethics. Um, this goes a really long way, like, especially if you plan ahead, invest in them, um, they will, you will see that investment rewards back. Um, so, you know, I would say like that, that was first trimester. Um, and in second trimester, 
the energy level went back up. Uh, my sister who lives uh, close, she said that she told me that, you know, you this is the trimester where you really want to work double as hard. And I know it's very contrary to like what most pregnant women are told, like, you know, it's it's your time to enjoy it. But she actually told me, like, this is the time you actually want to double down because this is actually when you have the most energy that you're going to have for a long, long time. So I decided to front load my my work. Um, I tried my best to do as much as my job um, in terms of training, making blueprints of like the work that I do and do everything that I needed to set myself up for success once I come back from maternity. Um, I started front loading baby planning, identifying what I needed to get educated on. For example, like, you know, we, we even, you know, through our research found out that 80% of births um, in Europe and Japan um, are actually done through midwives. But 80% of births here in the U.S. are actually done uh, uh, by, by doctors. And concurrently, the other stat that I found out was one in three babies here are actually born surgically. So how interesting, right? Like, you know, the, 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 these, these stats tying into together. So Priya, I'm not sure maybe uh, if everybody actually knows what the difference is between a midwife and an OBGYN yeah. or a doctor, right? Um, so something that we learned is that we had no clue either. Uh, but essentially, midwives seem to have a more wholesome philosophy of birthing. Um, they're not doctors, um, so they can't perform per surgery. They can't provide anesthesia. Uh, but many pregnancies eventually turn out to be low risk. And so midwives' way of delivering babies minimizes the need for medical interventions, such as epidurals, pitocin, and just any non-natural way of induction, right? Uh, but many OBGYNs, on the other hand, what we found out are a bit more trigger friendly in terms of interventions. And that's what, you know, that's what they learn in medical schools, typically. Um, many, many medical systems actually offer a balance of what's going on in the birthing room, meaning you have a OBGYN, you also have a midwife or doula, but many medical systems actually don't. Um, so a little bit more on this later. Yeah, and I, I would expand on that um, right now because, you know, in like we were talking about what happened per trimester, like in second trimester, we realized like by week 20, um, it gets really hard to switch practitioners. So if you have already chosen your OBGYN and the way that, you know, their system works um, after week 20, it's actually apparently it gets harder. So and it was during that week 10 to week 20 phase where I actually realized that if I continue on as a low risk pregnancy, which eventually did happen, um, you know, I was low risk all the way. Um, it is actually better for your pregnancy to be handled by a midwife. But the problem was like, you know, after knowing the stat that only 20% of births are done by midwives, I was very scared that what if I end up with a midwife who doesn't have that much experience? So like, you know, it almost was like there was the tug and pull of like different forces. Um, and eventually, you know, it was still way before week 20. We didn't know how no one has you know 2020 visions when it comes to like predicting the future so we didn't know how the pregnancy would evolve and so we chose to go through with our uh OBGYN who was very uh she was very very experienced so experienced that you know we realized after our birth she actually retired um so I you know we we eventually did go for her um and with the thought that look if the pregnancy becomes high risk at any point in time and that this could happen to anyone we're in the best care we're in the best hands um, and that gave me a lot of comfort. 
Um, so, you know, as, as the weeks progressed, as it went to trimester three, I was really busy on educating myself, uh, on birth. Um, I consider myself a huge geek, uh, and, you know, I, I'd be open to expand on this later on, but, you know, it's, I, I, if I would like give one piece of advice again, like, I guess like all moms and parents just seek, seem to keep giving advice, free advice. Um, I would always say like, educate yourselves. Like, you know, when you educate yourselves, knowing exactly what the full spectrum of options you have, you will end up feeling more empowered in um, any any ch uh, choices that you make uh, down the line. Um, the other thing I I'm a huge advocate of is actually exercise. Um, I was exercising throughout my pregnancy. Um, in fact, I hired my trainer, Verena, who's now a really, really close friend of mine, even before I was pregnant. Um, and I told her that, look, you know, one day I do intend to have a baby. And so push me, push my body and prepare me for this. I know a strong body maximizes the odds of a smoother pregnancy. And that is exactly what happened. Um, because I was pushing myself, exercise was so vital uh, in my entire journey. Um, I actually did not have too much issues. Like, you know, I, I don't know of anyone who would dare say like, I not having back pain, I actually did not have back pain because my back was strong enough. Um, what I did have on the on the other hand is uh, I did experience pelvic pain. So moving around in bed by the time third trimester was there, it was really hard. Um, I I did work my, you know, she did work me hard on my legs and back, but um, the pelvic pain was just really bad. Um, my joints sometimes would totally crack. Uh, it was really the effect of um, this hormone called relaxin, which, which, you know, releases in the body by the time I think their trimester comes. Um, and because relaxin is there in your body, like your whole, all joints in your body, it's not just one or two, like all joints become a lot looser. Um, so, you know, I, I, I tried my best to, you know, do my job of like getting my body as prepared. Um, so every morning I had a ritual where the moment I wake up, I had this 15 minute exercise that I had to do simply to get out of bed. It was really painful, but I had to do that because it would allow me to set me up for success um, without uh, for the entire day without experiencing pelvic pain. Um, and then it would always resurface overnight because that's what pelvic pain girdles do. Um, and, you know, and that's why there was the need of doing that 15 minute ritual every single morning. Um, we were also investigating into a nursery in trimester three. Um, I wasn't too sure of the concept of a nursery coming from Asia. Like there, you know, you kind of just sleep together as a family. Like there isn't really a separate room um, for a baby. Like, in fact, like, you know, a part of me almost felt like, is this like another marketing ploy? Um, I mean, how much does a baby need? Later on, you realize actually a baby needs a lot. <laughs> so we decided to um, first start off our, our nursery by keeping it very minimal um, and almost like include things as we go along. Um, because I am a strong believer of a circular economy. Um, and for for anyone who doesn't know what a circular economy is, it's it, it really comes down to like looking at what you what is already produced in the world out there and try to reuse it and then someone else is able to reuse it down the line so it's like the whole concept of giving and getting back so um you know many baby items do tend to be passed along but the buy nothing groups um if if you have one in your local community is amazing um it's an organization that actually runs on the premise that you should not buy anything so i did go on my local buy nothing group um 
uh, and, and just source out from moms out there, like, Hey, you know, I may need these resources, like these things, like if anyone is looking to pass them down, like, do let me know. Um, so that was great. Um, and so, uh, and, and I personally was very happy getting hand-me-downs, you know, for the, from the aspect of, uh, you know, lowering your overall cost. Um, I'm well aware that people in our demographics here, we we do face socioeconomic issues and anything that we can do to lower our bill is ultimately going to go a long way. Like I'm, I'm, I'm an investment professional myself. And so, you know, for me, like focusing on the financial aspect in my family is really important. So the more you can lower your expenses, the more you can then invest it and the more you can eventually protect your family in the long run. So um, I, I would say like we were ultimately really grateful for our community um, that came together, our friends, family that, you know, gave us so much love in our journey. Um, we even tried to have a baby shower, but because uh, of another COVID surge, uh, we had to cancel it. Um, instead, we had a traditional baby shower uh, in Marathi. Um, the traditional baby shower is called Dohar Javan. Um, my mom here, Harsha's mom, uh, she, they or, she organized it in the U.S. So really happy that, you know, the entire pregnancy was was pretty smooth um, and, and happy, I would say. Like, I would yeah. Harsha's probably main philosophy was keep Priya happy. <laughs> you did it very well. <laughs> That's, and you know, it, it does take a, they say it takes a village, but not just to bring a baby up, but also to set us up, up set us up for success. And given we were both working, we were both working hard, just the amount of food that came our way, the amount of love that came our way, our way uh, it kept us happy, it kept uh, mama happy, and we're very grateful for it. Tell us how you guys planned for your actual birth. Are there things that you were thinking of beforehand? Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the birthing preparation was definitely key. Um, you know, we were immersed in not just prepping for birth, to be really honest, um, but we were also setting up ourselves for postpartum. Um, and, you know, that included setting up our village. And most importantly, um, considering how geeky we are, um, we wanted to set up our knowledge base as well. We wanted to know everything that we could. <laughs> so we, we immersed ourselves in books, podcasts, like the one that we're on today, um, you know, just to really get a sense of like, what are the journeys out there and what is it that we have an information gap on? Um, in short, the human body really fascinates me. Uh, it's amazing what it is capable of. And my goal for my birth was to give my body its best chance for delivering a baby safely. And I wanted to maximize the opportunity for my body to deliver OB vaginally uh, and without unnecessary drugs and medication as far as possible to the extent that initially I started thinking about um, having no epidural uh, in, in my birthing plan. I, I was thinking if I do need something, maybe nitrous oxide. Um, eventually my hospital did not support nitrous oxide. So that was a bit of a bummer, but um, it, it, it you know started off from that gradient. Um, so I did, I did want to be fully aware of like what my body's uh, capable of, but at the same time, um, I also wanted to be fully comfortable and knowledgeable about when and if an intervention is needed because birthing can happen in any direction. 
Um, so we spent a lot of time in our third trimester setting up Harsh, who was my birth doula. We had this uh, built to birth package to help us with our educational journey. Um, and it was really helpful in, in, in doing that because I still remember um, Harsh telling me that he he actually was not sure if he could be my doula and his fears were definitely real. I kept telling him at that point in time, he he had no choice because literally in COVID, no one was allowed in my in, in the room at that point in time. So, you know, he really had no choice but to be my doula. <laughs> but you know, I, at no point did I envision being the, you know, being the doula who, pl- who played that role at the birth of my child, right? Like that was just never part of the playbook. Um, and let's just be honest, I wasn't your official doula. But, you know, as, as, as Priya mentioned, uh, you know, some medical systems don't allow for both an OBGYN and a midwife to be in the same birthing room. Um, and especially because of COVID, that often changed up for different institutions. And ours was such an institution. And really, we only found out about that a bit late in the pregnancy. Um, and so given Priya's preference of maximizing her body's natural birthing mechanisms, she needed an advocate in her birthing room. Um, and similar to a meetup, to a, to a midwife or doula. And so I was basically voluntold to play that role. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I had to do a lot of homework, uh, to understand the human body, how it is actually built to birth naturally, um, and how risks can materialize that require medical interventions, um, to be able to deliver safely. Um, you know, but what I learned is that in the American system, OBGYNs are often a bit aggressive in terms of identifying uh, when those risks can materialize. Uh, and that's really can what lead to more interventions than what's really necessary. Um, and this was a legitimate concern for us. And so uh, we were introduced to what's called the BRAINS framework to help us mitigate this concern in the birthing room. Um, so BRAIN is essentially an acronym that assists uh, the parents in gathering the information needed to make an informed decision about the mama's and the baby's health care. So the B stands for benefits, R stands for risks, A stands for alternatives, I stands for intuition or basically use your gut, and N stands for nothing, meaning, you know, what happens if you don't do this intervention? What happens if you do nothing? Um, And we found it to be a pretty logical and comprehensive framework for eliciting uh, information that often medical interventions in the birthing room may not provide willingly or proactively. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really important to emphasize that in birth, um, it ultimately, you know, does happen in two days, um, you know, if, if we're lucky. Um, but postpartum itself is a really long journey, which, you know, you never know, like, when it's going to, and I still believe that I'm in postpartum in many regards. So as much as we want it to, focus on like the birthing journey, um, which is important. Um, we also did want to make sure that we invest our unlimited hours that we had um, in, in the postpartum side of the world, because oftentimes women spend so much time thinking about their birth preferences, like, you know, what, what, what I should be doing when only to realize all that planning has gone out the window and you are massively unpre- underprepared for postpartum with no time, no energy left to do anything more there. Um, so I, I did want to get ahead of that, um, of that aspect, um, and ensure that I was well prepared for my postpartum journey itself. Um, I don't know if you have anything more to add there. No, I think we covered that third trimester pretty well. Cool. (laughs) I really like, um, I'm enjoying like on this end, how you are explaining how you actually did your, your, 
your research, right? And your preparation. Because we do have um, men, all of our storytellers share how they, what did you do to prepare for your, for your birth, right? And we also talk about it as well. But um, I think it is important to um, sometimes take a step back and just be explicit about it. Like the brain acronym is a beautiful way um, to really, when you're in those situations, trying to make a decision for maybe part of your birth um, preferences that might have shift, that you're able to slow everything down if able, like if there's not an actual emergency to be able to slow everything down and give yourself as the birthing person and the partner or support person a chance to really take in what's happening and be like, does this align with what we originally said? Is this, is this, mm-hmm. even if we have to make the shift, does this still feel good to us? Right. Um, Absolutely. I, and, and one additional tip that we learned from the built to birth course was sometimes you may need some time, some space to actually even think about what acronym, you know, what was that framework? Like I'm forgetting everything. Um, be it the woman or the man, you know, either the mom or the dad in the room can always tell the people in the room, like, Hey, we need our privacy. Like, just can we can we just have some time to ourselves to discuss the power of doing that for everything it actually makes a lot of sense because then you basically get your own space to rethink your efforts and you're not feeling compelled um in any way to be rushed into a decision which is really important while i completely agree with that i do want to i want to explore the man's perspective of being in the room a little bit later when we talk about the birthing experience i think (laughs) yeah yeah okay fair (laughs) i just wanted to add that just the whole pandemic experience has given a lot of parents um autonomy you know a, a lot more of the okay, we can't have anyone, so we have to be (laughs) the ones, you know, no one is coming to save you, like, it is the two of you, and it's like, um, it was an opportunity, you know, even though this is still ongoing, it's an opportunity for couples to really lean into each other, um, and learn how to support each other, and instead of thinking, oh, we just hired this person, they've got it, you know, it's like, no, you're the person, and I'm the person, and we're gonna have to figure out which roles we both play in this, and really work it out and I and I love the work. It's like Laurel said, I love the work that you two did, you know. Um yeah, I, we're both doulas and yes we want to be hired for work, right? <laughs> but at the same time it's like I love seeing because it's it allows even if you had had a doula, it allows them to step into a different space if you've done the work too, right? You're not teaching on the job, right? <laughs> You're you're spot on, Danny, on that. I think, you know, there are so many aspects in the pandemic that we can be grateful for. And one aspect is like, we just were forced in a situation to re-up our skills. Um, I remember like my friend had to do my hair and makeup on my wedding day because I didn't have a hair and makeup person that could come over. Um, And likewise, like Harsh just had to like re-up his skills to become a doula. And we sometimes joke that I think we have gathered so much information. We have zero like practice apart from ourselves, but we have gathered so much information about this that we can probably as a tag team become a birth doula. <laughs> I, I, you know, we have zero experience in the field, unlike you ladies. Um, but, you know, we the information gathered, like we would love to like benefit someone with that. But that's important. Like, because then you're able to pass that information onto your friends, onto your family, um, in a way that you all communicate with each other. Um, Mm -hmm. so that then they're able to be like, oh, do I need that? Does, 
I didn't even know that was an option, but now they do know because you have that information. Um, you know, I think I, I, we have sometimes talked about how, like, unless you're actively preparing to have a child or within birth work, this part of it is missed, right? You're not Mm -hmm. tapping into this. You're not having those conversations because they're just not a part of it until it, you think that it's going to happen for you. And a lot of the things that we talk about, you should be doing before you even decide that you want to expand your, your family. Um, because it, as right. the breaking person, it makes you talk about my body. How do I understand my body? How do we communicate with each other? How do we see birth looking? What do you know about birth? All of these are things that we should be talking about before we are there day of. <laughs> yeah. Fully aligned with you. And actually, you know, we, we, we're at an age where we have a lot of friends that are that are going through or will be going through or have gone through similar experiences. And as we started talking about some of the things we were learning, I found it very interesting that often I got responses such as, hey, it's a doctor. I'm blindly going to trust a doctor. I don't really need to dive into any of this because it's the doctor. They know best. And I thought that was a bit interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that we did our research because uh, I don't think that kind of mindset would have worked for us. So that knowledge base and creating that knowledge base was was very helpful for us. And I think as we as we get exposed to different generations of doctors, know that even medical science has evolved through time. Like, you know, a very older generation of doctors would have one way of doing things, which may be considered more wholesome. Um, now the newer generations are exposed to even superior technology and using that technology. So, you know, there is like there, there is no one right way to put it quite bluntly, but you are in the driving seat of your body. Um, It is, you know, as much Mm -hmm. as it is our responsibility to know our own body, like I think, you know, we should definitely feel um, uh, excited to, to, to take on that ownership of, um, of knowing who you are as a person and your biology and your physiology. All of it. All of it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about the birth. Start us from the beginning. Oh my gosh! Um, totally unexpected. Obviously, everyone's uh, everyone's birth is very unexpected. Um, but maybe, and you know, to to a certain extent, maybe a scheduled C-section could be more expected. But even then, there are always surprises. There's always room for surprises. So for from my vaginal birth preference, it eventually became a C-section. Um, and you know, it's funny that we're here because some of some listeners may resonate with this. Um, amongst the Indian aunties, uh, the older generation Indian aunties, uh, it's very normal for us, anyone who experiences C-section to be told, oh, I'm so sorry, it wasn't a normal delivery. And I'm just like, "Uh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. It was totally normal. I mean, your child can birth vaginally, or he can be extracted out of you pretty normally too. There, there is nothing abnormal about a C-section procedure. Um, and such surgeries exist for the very reason that many a times not everything goes in favor for vaginal delivery. Um, and women have a choice today, which is so helpful compared to in the past. We have a choice because in cases like mine, when one aspect doesn't work, the other option does help. So I had a 26-hour labor, um, and I believe I gave my body its best shot um, at delivering my son, but eventually I needed intervention. It wasn't my first choice, but I did need intervention. Yeah, and maybe I can just take a step back and kind of start a little bit at the beginning. Um, 
your career started having uh, contractions at about like 5 a.m. Um, and initially, you know, we were like, hey, this is just a continuation of the Braxton Hicks. Um, but we felt but she was like, no, something is a bit different here. Um, they were regular, but they just with the strength levels were different and inconsistent. Uh, but then over the morning, they slowly grew stronger as we ate breakfast, um, had some tea. So we started using the various exercising techniques that we had learned to help relieve the pain. Um, her water broke at about 10 a.m. I think she was using the bouncy ball. And, um, you know, we knew it's not going to be like the movies, but it was still like barely a trickle. And I had to ask the question, like, do you just pee yourself a little <laughs> bit? Um, and she wasn't 100% sure either. Um, like, I don't know it's if so you felt weird. anything. Yeah, yeah. It just like felt a trickle calm down. I wasn't yeah. sure what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, we we kind of we kind of laughed about it, um, but we we did call the hospital, and they were like, you know what, um, you should come on in. It's probably your water breaking. Um, they told us, you know, bring your bags, but it's it, it's probably still early. We'll probably send you home. And luckily for us, our hospital is like ten minutes away. Uh, but we ended up in the hospital. Uh, they checked her, and they basically told us that hey, we have a hospital policy. If your water breaks, no matter how early you have to stay in the hospital. So we were a little bit like, oh man, we really wanted to do as much of labor as possible at home in our comfortable environment that we had created uh, kind of in our bubble. Um, so we were a bit surprised and taken aback, but we, we, we rolled with it and it turned out okay. The hospital allowed us to kind of build our own vibe in the room and we created our own uh, energy that, you know, it's super important during labor um, I think for the woman to maximize her, her comfort because it is a very uncomfortable time. Um, so we were able to create that and we ate, we watched TV, we had dance parties with the <laughs> nurses. Um, and Priya was always moving around, moving around, which was very important because I think that's very critical for the baby to be positioned properly and for the baby to descend um, as she's dilating and effacement uh, continues. Yeah, and I would say for anyone out there who is also trying to maximize their chance of a vaginal delivery, um, on our research, we realized movement is actually really key because at any point in time, the baby may not be well positioned. And in order for the baby to, like there's so many things that need to happen for a baby to be finally in the right position, your vagina to be in the right state, cervix to be in the right state. Like you need a trifecta of things and movement is really key to help with the baby's positioning um which is why the dance parties we had we actually created a spotify playlist um for labor it literally has songs like i like to move it move it but it also has like <laughs> lil john and yin yang twins on it and the nurses used to come in and they're like well, what is going on over here <laughs> my, i think my favorite song on that was push it <laughs> oh yeah it's right um we, we had we honestly had so much fun um and i would say like part of like the lead up of like you know the dilation um the effacement um it was getting painful but my most beautiful memory of my labor was actually in that hospital room while i was having my contractions which were so so painful and um holding harsh's hand and looking into his eyes and doing my breathing exercises it was so magical. Um, I, you know, if I had to get pregnant all over again, I would probably miss that the most because that was, I would say, like, you know, your your body is in so much pain. 
nothing is giving you comfort except the love that you're seeing in in your partner's eyes and to me that was just uh it's it still moves me to this day like thinking about that um so so you know i would i would definitely stress on the aspect of movement um breathing exercises i didn't realize how vital they were um in fact i i got a little like a pat on the back from one of the nurses who was like she that you know she was like i'm, I'm proud of what the breathing exercises that you're doing like they're really helping you know i i didn't I don't need to teach you anything. And I was like, no, no, I still need lots of help. (laughs) Teach me everything that I need to do. Um, So the breathing exercises helped, the movement helped. Um, But, you know, after about eight hours, I was about six centimeters dilated. And honestly, I could not take it anymore. Like there was only uh, so much that breathing exercises could do. There was only so much like amazing dance parties could do. At some point in time, I was just like in in tears like I, I I was hoping to uh initially kick the epidural down the line but I was also aware that I needed some energy eventually for the pushing so I had actually interviewed my hospital's anesthesiologist hopefully I'm pronouncing that right um while creating my birthing preferences um and by the way ladies you can totally interview any support person in the hospital like you you can interview your anesthesiologist as well to understand more about what is the level of epidural that you want when to take it so when I had interviewed them they actually told me that you can technically take an epi even at 10 centimeters but by then your body's shaking your contractions are so strong they're coming in so quickly that it'll be very hard for you to stay still and be injected in your spine with it so um and I also found out that the epi isn't always meant to numb the ring of fire the cervical area um so you know i i was almost like maybe i should just take it whenever i really cannot take it so at six centimeters i totally caved uh and i got on it and you know of course before the epidural um harsh lined me up with my favorite cake uh and uh i'm a huge sucker for cake uh especially fresh cream cake and he brought it to me and i was like great i have everything in life that i need now (laughs) Yeah, actually, our order of operations for comforting Priya um, was was her was uh, breathing, her favorite music and dancing. But before the epidural, there was her favorite cake from Lady M, which is like this uh, layers of crepes and in, like the most amazing silky cream filling of different types in between. Um, and there's like I think it's only they only have it in Singapore. London, New York, and there's one that happens to be like an hour away from us. Oh um, my god, yeah. Lady M. I, I, I could do some Lady M right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't deserve it, but I could do You absolutely <laughs> deserve it with everything that you've been doing in the last last six months. Um, so, you know, cake was number three there, but then there was another secret gift there, which is number four, which is I'd actually bought her a little push present. Um, and it was a little necklace, which was engraved and I, I, I thought it would be really fun to make it where it's actually from Ovi because we'd already decided his name. Um, so it was engraved it was really a little, side, <laughs> little signature by him. Um, we actually, we didn't know the name because we didn't know the gender. Oh, yeah, that's right. We had two names selected. We. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, we actually figured our son's name. Actually, uh, glad that you asked the question. I'm now remembering that we actually figured out our son's name more from the acronym. We were thinking... <laughs> what is the best word that goes with G? And then we realized one fine day after quite a few drinks was, <laughs> oh, the <O-G>. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. And, 
And so because we didn't know the gender, we have a we had a O uh, for both the girl and a boy selected. So it's not that Ovi signed it, but OG signed it. And it would have worked either way had we had a boy or a girl. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so, you know, you know, the, the cake, uh, the push present, things like that. Right. It's a very uncomfortable time for the woman. And, the, you know, it's 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 the it's a support it's the partner's job to to really proactively set up various different methods of comforting her emotionally, physically, mentally, uh, because those things go such a long way in setting her up for success during pushing. Uh, that's really a big part of what I learned. And I, I love comforting her. And so it was a really fun experience for me to set that up. Yeah. And I, I would also add that, you know, oftentimes, like, I mean, honestly, ever since I relocated to the US, I realized consumerism is so rife here. Like, you know, there's a, there's always a need to buy different things. And, you know, push present to me, it also kind of classifies under that. It's, it's like a really nice to have thing. But I think in the US, like, I mean, the whole aspect of giving jewels and all that, it's, it's just so overdone. Like, end of day like I re- I love the push present mm-hmm. harsh but I remember the breathing like looking into your <laughs> eyes and that to me was the biggest takeaway that no money can possibly buy you can tell gifting is not one of her strong love languages <laughs> uh, not at all <laughs> cake cake and uh, breathing exercises clearly <laughs> but you know what even if uh you know Ovi at the end of the day is going to love seeing that and he's gonna love the story behind it so it's not really about whether you wear it or not. I think it's just a cool thing to have uh, that reminds us of that time that we can yeah. all uh, share that yeah. memory with each other. For sure. For sure. Um, and I would say like, you know, about half an hour into the epidural, eventually I was so happy laying in bed, no pain, you know, managed to catch some rest. Like it was amazing. Um, you know, I, I knew that I needed to honestly rest up for the eventual marathon that was to come. Um, and what the nurses then did was every half an hour, they turned me, um, so that the epidural would spread on both sides. Um, I got the peanut ball, um, and you know, what they did was they put my legs up. So it was, it was useful. Um, but I did feel that I had to own the process because what, while my nurses were, um, they were, you know, helping me with the peanut ball, um, every 12 hours as the shift changes, like each nurse team came in and they had like a different level of expertise altogether. So there wasn't every time a consistency in, um, the style and the uh, level of experience of the nurses. Um, and, you know, I, I realized that I needed to, me and Harsh needed to actually direct things, but frankly, I was quite tired I was uh I was I was so happy to that the opportunity of just like lying down um and so I thought like okay I'm probably doing a good job like just you know uh rebuilding my energy for what's to come um the the built to birth classes were what actually taught us that even with an epidural you can actually move around in bed you can get assistance from nurses or equipment to do many things apart from just being on your back um and i would say this is you know when i think back I don't think my nurses were aware of all the different positions to move in um, with an epi um, because it's not a, I, I guess it's, it may not be a very usual thing because an epidural does get you quite, um, and not paralyzed is probably not the right word, but it numbs your entire body um, that you may not have the right power to actually be on your knees or something. But if you do have assistance or if you have the, um, 
the buy-in of your nurses, you actually can get into positions of that. Um, so I was open to taking on that risk um, and, you know, being in those positions. But I I don't think they were um, because eventually, like, I just slept. I tried to ask them, hey, can I be moved into positions that, you know, help, that helps him descend? Um, and to that, it you know, I usually got the response back of like, oh yeah, there's the peanut ball. You're doing great. Like, this is awesome. And um, so I didn't really push the button too much there purely because at that point in time, I was just like, let's get with the program. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I am curious what, you know, Harsh felt because obviously we were educated with the same materials um, and I was physically going through what I was going through and he had a very independent lens of looking at things. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll say two things about that, right? Um, first is I think those moments that Fair described about, hey, she's gotten, she's chosen to get the epidural, but we still want to move around and the nurse is not really having the knowledge uh, and skill set to help her move around in an epidural. I think that's when we kind of started realizing that different medical system or different medical institutions have different uh, levels of advocacy in terms of natural birth uh, and minimizing interventions. And these folks, while as nice as they were and as lovely as they were, they just weren't trained for it. Um, and so, you know, tying that back to week 10, you find out you're pregnant, understanding what your needs are, what your family's needs are, and aligning to the right OBGYN, to the right midwife, and to the right hospital that can provide those needs is super critical. Um, and, you know, I think that was a, definitely a big lesson learned for us. Um, the second thing that I want to say is, you know, Priya mentioned a little bit earlier just about how both parents should feel empowered in that birth room to say, you know, use that brain's framework, but kick folks out and be like, hey, we need to just have some space to talk about things and make a decision together. Um, I think that's a bit easier said than done, especially for a man, because he is the only man in a room full of about 10 to 15 different uh, female nurses in this case. And she's going through a lot of pain. And well, it, it almost felt like, like as a man, like, who am I to kind of say, wait, 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 everybody pause what they're doing. Priya, stop, like, pause your pain. Let me pull out our birth preferences paper and say, no, we said no epidural or we said no to this or this is not part of our plan. Like, I, I just I was not I, I didn't have um, I didn't have the courage to do that. And I feel fairly confident that a lot of other men in that room also feel the same way. Um, and so, uh, you know, theoretically, I think it is it, it, it is it, it was great that we got to step up and be our own doulas and handle this on our own. But having another female advocate in that room certainly would have helped me um, kind of help pause things and slow things down. I, I would agree. And, you know, in short, like you would say that despite you trying your best, putting your best foot forward um, in, you know, learning everything that you needed to learn as a doula, simply because that you were the only man in the room, it was just hard yeah. to implement that. And it that's is. when having an actual female doula is yeah. like absolutely critical to advocate for mm -hmm. the mom. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I I definitely do agree because you know one one thing that I I did learn through our research and everything was you know there there are two different styles of breathing exercises. One is called uh, closed glottis and the other is open glottis. Um, closed glottis is what my OB really liked, which is essentially you hold your breath and you push while you're holding your breath. 
Um, and by holding your breath, you're actually restricting oxygen to your brain. And when you're doing this too often, too quickly, it actually could potentially lead to your baby's rate, uh, heart rate dropping and uh, the rate, the risk of a C-section increases. Open glottis, on the other hand, is when you breathe your baby out, you inhale and then you push on your exhale. And you can do this as long as you want. It's less effective. Um, but, you know, you you can basically like increase that time duration um, of how, however long you want to push um, your baby. So eventually when my OB arrived uh, for the pushing, um, she did want to try it her way. And by then, honestly, I had done three hours of open glottis style of pushing. So I tried to do it my way, which is, you know, you, you breathe in and then you exhale, uh, you breathe your baby out on your exhale. Um, and it obviously was not working. And, you know, I, I was fully dilated. Um, by then I was fully effaced, um, but Obi had not moved in my pelvic station. He was still at, um, I believe it's plus, plus two. Um, so it, it was like, I believe it's plus three to minus, or maybe it's, I'm, I'm confusing. He was almost at the exit, but not really he at the exit. He didn't move much. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I decided to give my OB style a good fair chance. Um, and after one hour of close glottis, close, close glottis pushing, um, OB made some progress. He moved from a grand plus two to plus one. <laughs> he was basically so high up that even a vacuum couldn't get him out. And, you know, at that point in time, I was almost wondering, like, is, like, both styles are not working. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, you know, clearly, like, something, something needs to be done here. I was like, is this a reflection of how stubborn this little man is going to be for the next 18 years? <laughs> Not budge. I know, I know. Um, so, you know, by then she she did, my OB did um, recommend that I continue pushing. Um, but at the same time, she was like, you know, she, from her medical experience, she actually does think that my case does need a C-section because the progress is just simply very slow. And you've been pushing for what, three, four hours? Yeah, four this, hours yeah, by then. Like um, and so, tired. <laughs> yeah, by, by then there were two things that had happened. I knew I had pushed very long and hard in different styles, um, all the different styles that I knew. And two, most importantly, my back was breaking. I was in so much pain. It was so surprising that, you know, I had not felt that pain thanks to the epidural in my vagina, but it was actually in my back that I was actually... I, I thought I broke my back, quite honestly. I still remember grabbing the hand of my anesthesiologist and asked him why, you know, what, what I feel is still a rational question, by the way. Like, you know, we have figured out pain medications for delivering babies. But when I asked him, like, hey, can I get something for my back? He was like, no, there is nothing for your back. It's just unreal. Um, so anyway, the decision to, you know, say, say yes to a C-section ultimately was very seamless because one I knew I had did my very very best um to get the baby out and we tried different things we 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 maximized all all the odds there and I felt really empowered to make that decision because of all that upfront education we had done um and Harsh and me being on the same same page always you know we have we have been very aligned um attacking this as a team so the moment I said yes it was a gush of relief almost um, to actually move on with like the next phase. 
Yeah, no, I think uh, I think it was I was a bit concerned about the decision. Like, are we going to see eye to eye on this? Is she going to want to continue to push? And because that's going to lead to uh, more of an emergency situation. So when she said, hey, I am exhausted, I'm I'm ready to get this baby out. I was like, OK, let's 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 de-risk this whole thing and, and let's get this. This is this is worthwhile to do this intervention. And that's actually, in my opinion, where that entire doctor team like that's where they did their best. Like maybe that's what they're set up to do the best, but that surgery, that entire C-section was so smooth. Um, it was brilliantly done. Uh, it was, um, you know, I think she didn't, feel, she didn't, she barely felt anything. Nothing. Um, you know, we, in our birth preferences, we had said that if we do need a C-section, a golden hour is critical to us, which is, you know, we want to make sure that the baby and mama get skin to skin time as soon as possible. Once you do what you need to do with the baby and they absolutely obliged to that. And, you know, baby came out. I was right there. I got to see it. I got to cut the umbilical cord. Um, I followed the baby. Baby got weighed. Just very few cleaning things. And, you know, as the baby opened his eyes for the first time, like he saw me, which was the most be beautiful thing in the world. And then right away, took him to mama. And then they were doing skin to skin while she was being uh, kind of put back together and, and cleaned up. So that C-section was actually, I would argue, they actually did a very smooth job in that surgery. Um, and then after that, it was, it was just, uh, time to time for nursing, uh, learning how to nurse, uh, and, and really just learning about the baby, which was so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I, I still remember like the moment the baby was taken out, the baby, Ovi was taken <laughs> out. <laughs> Ovi was taken out. Um, we, we didn't know the gender. Um, yeah, and that's right. I remember that was my first question to you. I was like, what is it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We had, we had no clue. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, what did you feel as a man looking at a C-section? Like, you know, what were your preferences there? Uh, seeing your partner being cut up. <laughs> well, so they, they, they put up, they put up a curtain so that you don't have to see anything. Yeah. And so I basically was asked the question, which side of the curtain do I want to be on? Um, and so I said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to be on the side of your face because I want to be there with you. I want to be there to support you rub your hair, rub your head as needed. Uh, but as Ovi came out, like I couldn't help but peek because I just couldn't wait to see him. Um, so yeah, I saw, I, I saw him come out and uh, I could tell just based on the angle, he was a little boy. And uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was the sweetest thing, but I, I didn't have to see you cut open and I'm, I'm happy for that. That's, there's a reason I'm not a doctor. There's a reason I didn't go into the medical field. <laughs> That's great. I love you guys storytelling together. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, I want to double back to your comfort, your operation. You say the layers of operation for comfort for Priya. Um, harsh, you could teach a master class, like having all the things. I love that you took ownership of that um, for her. Because as women, we often take care of our own care right um we make the list we tell people what to do for us or we do it ourselves right we call the people and make the things happen and the fact that you took it to be like your responsibility like hey i can't deliver a baby i can't carry a baby but what can i do and that's important for other partners to hear whether no regardless of gender um this you're the non-birthing partner like Take all the things that you can take off of their their list, and if and if it's that, they're how to comfort them. Like it's beautiful. I 
was beautiful. I love that. Um, and I also want to talk about what you said about doctors. Um, I do like doctors. I don't want the doctors that listen and think we don't like you guys. We do. <laughs> you have a role. You have a job. We are thankful for your service, your hard work, all the years of school. But a lot of it is specific to the business of being born and we we're, we see it we see you <laughs> we see you um just that you say like of all the things that happened the best thing that they did was the c-section like th as if that's what they've been training for right um the most the thing that and i think it's the thing that's the most predictable right um and so that's why it, it feels routine and it's it can go on like without a hiccup and that can be comforting to a person who holds liability mm -hmm. over other people's lives every day and i i see the doctors and i see their stress levels i see you know what they have to go up against but i want care providers to take on the responsibility of both things like you weren't in an emergent situation right so yes it is easier to go into a surgery like that um and to come out with a clear head but you weren't you were a healthy person you showed up healthy there was nothing else going on yeah there there's some work that needs to be done if, if your baby ha isn't coming down that just means that there was a positioning issue right um that's just a it's time that's backing that baby out a little bit and changing positions on your body so the baby's body can change positions. And that's, you know, that is the doula work. I will say that. And there are some nurses that are trained as doulas and there are some that are not. And when you talk about people being all nurses, they've all gone to nursing school, but some of them specifically take on the training to become doulas as well. Or they pay attention to the doulas that show up at the hospitals and learn from them. Mm -hmm. and use it the next for each consequent birth of their own and you don't get the same type of nurses you're absolutely right Danny there's so many things I want to expand on, <laughs> on that um you know one aspect which you know we kind of discussed at the start was like different medical doctors have different layers of experience right um what I have actually noticed is doctors in um, emerging countries, say, you know, India or Pakistan, um, when they carry out a surgery, they actually like, you know, they don't just do that surgery for that one purpose. Like, you know, if they're an OBGYN, they are only responsible, like in the US, you're only responsible for certain uh, um, organs or certain aspects. Like, you know, the law is very clear on like what you're responsible for and what you're not responsible for. And so in the US, doctors seem to be very mindful of that but in emerging countries like it's very wholesome when you cut someone up like they actually do sometimes like tell you like hey um we noticed that there was something that we observed that was not very normal um so to your point of um you know doctors here we actually had uh an experience with our doctor that was quite unforeseen um so she was very very experienced um she was she also did my sister's uh um her second kid. Um, and that's why we decided to go for her, um, given her experience level. Um, and throughout the journey, like, you know, we, we realized that she had 
lots of um she had a wealth of knowledge but she was definitely more quick in her appointments like you know we had our list of questions she had very quick responses but we were like never mind you know we let's just carry on with her and then eventually like you know there was the c-section that happened she wasn't there all the way only until i pushed so you know there was an entire gap in her presence and then after that this is the like where i think you know jaws should drop after the C-section, I asked her, obviously I knew what a C-section is, but I asked her. It was hey, like six hours after. Yeah. So nap, nursing session, and yeah. then she's awake and alert. Yeah. This was like on day one, like oh, of, yeah. of the hospital um, journey. Like we, we asked her, um, hey, you know, how did the C-section go? Like, you know, what did you see? What did you observe? She said, I don't know what you mean by that question. Let me send you some YouTube videos to tell you what a C-section is all about. And that's when I was like, I I was still in that recovering aspect and I just didn't believe that I heard that. So I let that one go. But then on the second day, I asked her the same question and I asked her like, can you tell me, can you please expand on what my C-section looked like, you know, what were the organs? How did they look? Like, you know, give me a little bit more. And she said that she doesn't have the time to explain eight years of her medical experience. Um, and she rather that I look up a YouTube video or resources that she can pass me. And to that, I was just so mad, absolutely mad. It was shocking. It, you know, it, you can, you can basically say that she just had terrible bedside manners. Um, And then, you know, weeks after we realized she retired, it just went to show that she was, you know, towards the end of her journey anyway, she had lost, maybe she had lost empathy, I don't know, but she definitely was not to your point, the aspect of like, you know, being there as a medical professional for the birthing journey, I don't think that she was the partner. She was there focused on just delivering a healthy baby and ensuring the mother is, you know, as healthy as possible, I guess. So, you know, the responsibilities of uh, of doctors here, I, I, I do agree with you. Like, I think medical professionals could take a next step at just being more empathetic. Um, and if the moment they realize they have lost that empathy, like, you know, take the, take the necessary next steps, like don't hurt or don't harm um, patients that could come follow, right? Yep. There was something else you touched on, but it's totally like skipping my mind now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But I will say that I know that most people that have had surgical births, like what they want to hear, and this is for anyone that's listening, right? Um, They want to know why. Why am I having a C-section? They want, you're the one that can see inside of their bodies to say, the umbilical cord is short and the baby couldn't go down any further. The umbilical cord is wrapped around the baby tighter than we thought and it was keeping them from coming down. The baby's head is turned this way or that way and the baby couldn't come down. And if you had back pain, that means your baby was probably coming sunny side up, which made it harder for them to come down. Um, and and I didn't see inside of you to know that. Like, that's just like birthing knowledge. Like, that's usually the types of things. And that's what people want to hear when they say, like, how was my surgical birth? If they're saying what happened. Right. Like why? Because otherwise you leave with something's wrong with my body and I don't know how to push babies out or something. Right. Like and it's not that like you did the work, like you did all the things you could do, all of them, literally. (laughs) So 
don't I don't know what you carry and I and I hope you're not carrying something like that the feeling like your body failed you in any way like things happen in there and some things you just cannot control and it and if you do try to control them it just takes longer right and who gets to decide how long that is yeah i i would say i was not unhappy with a c-section i was almost like really grateful when i actually said yes to a c-section um purely because i felt that whatever steps that i took in the lead up um i did my best like i knew that i had tried to maximize the odds um and so it didn't feel too it, it didn't feel bad at all actually but what was the bitter pill was actually the bedside manners like if if that was done a little bit better, like, you know, it would have made the whole thing a lot, like, nicer. Um, well, thank God she's retired. <laughs> I wanted to touch on um, you, Harsh, describing, like, trying to be an advocate, right, in this room um, mm-hmm. with all these female-identifying people, right? And it's funny... It, not funny, but it's coincidental that it connects with the recent episode we just released and how um, there was also this conversation of like allowing partners to feel empowered in the process, right? Like we, Danny and I talk about how sometimes we'll go into births and they only will reference the dads as dad. And we're like, they have names, <laughs> put the name on the board and call them that for the birth because they are also a part of this experience. Like see them, right? And I yeah, think so if we true. just- Right. Give space for for you to feel empowered and for you that this is a shared space unless the birthing person has identified like, no, they don't get to say anything and anything they say doesn't matter. We're assuming you're on the same like you are on the same team. So if you're saying thing, you know, we say this as doulas, like we're bridges within this and right. We can we can provide things. But like harsh you and Priya's relationship, I'm watching you harsh comfort her so that I know what to pick up on and where I should move. And if I don't give you yeah. that space, I'm not allowing you two to work on something that is yours. Um, right. So if you are in all of that to say, we as birth workers, as care providers have to allow partners to feel empowered. Um, and that means addressing you when you walk in, when we're, when we're having yeah. a conversation like, yes, Priya was going through the process, but if I'm having a conversation about what's happening, I'm looking at both of you to kind of see, is mm-hmm. Priya leaning more on you in this moment? That can be like, she might right. just be making eye contact with you. And as a doula, I'm like, okay, she's signaling to me that she wants Harsh to make, to make the statement. And I might ask for clarification, right. but I'm looking at you, Harsh, to give me that. It might be like, okay, so what I'm hearing is, and then you both can say yes. But that's just me. Right. Like, yeah. that's me picking up on body language. That's me um, yeah. just giving that you both are are vital in all of this. I appreciate yeah. you saying that. I think those things may seem may seem small, but I think they would actually go a long way in, in the supporting partner, uh, having the confidence to actually advocate. So I appreciate you saying that. That's the stuff that's not in the textbooks, y'all. Like, that's just that's <laughs> human connection, yes. right? Like, no that's, that's what it is. Tell us about postpartum, immediate postpartum. You spoke about a little bit, like, how is it coming home and how is it now? 
You know, I'm actually going to let uh, Harsh take this one because <laughs> I, I would say my version is not going to reflect the real hardship or weirdly what Harsh went through. Um, I was obviously like in, uh, my body had gone through something beautiful um, and, and torturous as well, I guess, if you think about surgery being that way. But, um, you know, you're still as a woman coming back home on immense pain meds. I did not feel much pain because of the level of pain meds that I was taking. Um, And postpartum was tough in the standard ways that it is. Lack of sleep, the C-section recovery being such a big black hole, um, not being able to move much. But, you know, I think this is where, to your point, like the non-birthing partners have a real golden opportunity to step up. um, And Harsh did exactly that. He not just stepped up, but he was in the driving seat of everything related to OB and my recovery. And all I had to do was focus on one, nursing him, two, ensuring that I was eating the right foods to produce milk. And for that, we actually have to thank um, his mom for putting me on this strict lactation diet. Um, And three, I just tried to sleep as much as possible because that's uh, critical in producing milk. So, you know, I knew exactly what I had to focus on for the first six weeks. But the real hard work was actually done by Harsh. I think that's giving me too much credit. I mean, birthing and recovery after a C-section and while recovering after major surgery, nursing every two hours, like that's the hardship. It was easy for me to warm up food, give it to you in a plate, clean, like play with a really adorable, cute baby. Sure, the, okay, the diapers are a lot of hardship because very smelly so i'll 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 get i'll take the credit for that i did not (laughs) i did not change obi's diapers at all until week five like i did not change his diapers that was all you (laughs) but honestly the the hardship is is by the by the young mother in recovering and having to nurse uh nurse the child at the same time uh but yeah you know initially at the hospital if you are aware that a possibility of a C-section exists, but you never think it's going to happen to you. Um, and so at the hospital, you know, it was, um, she was quite a bit out of commission. And so I, I did have to step up to uh, take care of the baby. Uh, but it was being in the hospital, it was like the best training possible because those nurses are there all around and you're getting in-person training on how to do everything regarding that baby, um, which is better than any books or videos you can ever watch. Um, to that point, uh, we stayed an extra day longer at the hospital just so I could learn a little bit more. Um, and so, yeah, so our actual, our, our recovery at the hospital, it was a very good experience. The nurses were very sweet. It was, it was quite nice. Um, and then when we did get home, uh, you know, feel very blessed that my parents or at least one of our parents could be here uh, to support us. Um, you know, all the food was nicely cooked, uh, ready for Priya to continue to eat and recover and rest. Um, for that next week, I continued to uh, be the key player in terms of taking care of the little one uh, because my parents, were, they hadn't they hadn't touched a baby since I was a baby more than 30 years ago. Um, and so, you know, it took them a while to feel comfortable and confident in changing diapers or feeding or feeding him the bottle um, and, and burping and stuff like that. Um, so the first two weeks were a lot of very limited sleep for me. 
But as I said, just seeing a cute little baby like that, that was, I think, already smiling by the point, by the time we did it two weeks. Like, no, this is the baby. This is the baby gas. They say it's the baby gas, right? But the baby was looking at me and smiling. At least I was, maybe I was being delirious. I don't know. I'm, but that's what kept me going. Um, and then by the time we entered week three, my parents were able to feel more confident and actually then, you know, take over some of the daytime duties. So now... I was taking the full night shift. And then during the day, I was able to sleep for four or five hours where they completely took care of him. Um, and then also helped take care of her, make sure she got rest, she got food. Um, and then really by week four, she had, you know, she did a really good job of uh, finding the right balance between resting and continuous movement, continuous movement. Because after a major surgery like that, like you don't want to be fully bed rest. It's important for you to move, but not overexert yourself. Um, so by week four, week five, she was moving around. And then I had to retrain her on everything that I trained my parents on because she hadn't really changed any diapers or anything then. So that was fun. But, you know, like major props to her. She's she's such a she brings so much. She she brings so much efficiency into our life. She was like, Harsha, I know you've been doing this for five weeks and I know you think you're the best. But let me show you a better way to do this. And here I am just like mind blown. Like, wow, this woman's amazing. Um, and then, uh, by week six, I was actually back at work. So, um, I think the dynamic there was I used to work during the day and then I used to take over from the evening till about maybe midnight, 1am. Um, she used to rest and then she used to kind of do the uh, night shift early morning. Um, and then she used to get some rest during the day while I used to be at work. Um, and then one of our parents used to help out. Yeah, I, I'm sure so many more of your episodes probably have touched on, you know, the concept of paternity leave, um, like, or non-birthing partners leave, like, it's, I just don't get it, like, that is so vital, like, getting enough maternity and paternity leave is so vital in making sure that, you know, all types of pressures, the glass ceiling that women face is lifted, it's, you know, it's a big step, and one thing I realized um, in postpartum was, because I got the longer postpartum uh, maternity policy compared to him, um, I had a little bit more time to get to know my baby. I had a little bit more time to build up that knowledge base of getting really good at the baby work, right? And that's why men all, um, most times get left behind because they then see their, or the non-birthing partners see their birthing partners get ahead with like, oh, that, that person is like so good with the baby, like let them carry on. But that's what ends up creating that gap and so having equality right from the birth of your baby the birth of your child will help close that gap and I was laser focused in making sure that despite me having that additional like you know time off um and taking care of my of my little one I was creating um cheat sheets playbooks to make sure that Harsh knows exactly what I'm learning. So it was that additional task that I put myself up for. But, you know, now that we're both back at work, it's actually immensely helped us because if it's not in that playbook, if Harsh has a question about our child that's not in the playbook, I don't know that then. He should look it up and put it in the playbook. <laughs> like, you know, that's his responsibility. Um, so, you know, the, the whole aspect of having a baby while you're recovering is, is, is very challenging. But I think, you know, we we are in the driving seat of making sure that, you know, we ourselves and our partners are uh, are collectively working on it together. And that collective ownership is really 
important in my opinion. Um, so postpartum, um, you know, it, it went by so quickly. I, I just can't believe, uh, you know, the, uh, I, sorry, I should take that back. Maternity, my maternity leave went by so quickly. Um, I am already back at work, but I still feel that I'm in postpartum in so many regards. Um, I, I still have to go for physical therapy. Um, I, you know, like, so the aspect that I broke my back, it wasn't my back. I apparently had injured a bit of my shoulder and I only realized this when I went to my PT person and I realized like oh my trap area is not at its best so um, uh, you know the recovery that we need um, post-birth is really really important um, I would say definitely focus on it for for anyone that's you know delivered vaginally um, making sure you take the help of a pelvic floor therapist is so critical in ensuring that you're in a good shape um, that postpartum PT is often overlooked very very quickly because women have to get back to work so much more quickly than, than expected. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more about what you said. Um, it's, uh, I only, I only got five weeks off for paternity leave and it wasn't nearly enough. Um, I, I certainly wish that it was, things were a little bit more equal from that perspective um, because there's so much bonding that needs to be done with that child, uh, not just by the mother, but by the father as well. Um, and so I'm happy to see, especially in the tech world, a lot of folks are now giving out four months of paternity leave for fathers, six months for mothers. Um, and I think that's really what should be the norm rather than the exception. And yet, like, you know, that's again, like so many people get zero. Yeah. Like, so many people get zero and that's just not right. Yeah. Um, I, I used to work in London. Europe has such socialist policies it's amazing like if we could even get like 10 percent of that i would be so happy um and one thing that you did mention harsh about you know the postpartum journey um we did uh we did use the aspect that we were so close to family to our advantage we mobilized our entire community we mobilized our entire village we we we, we didn't feel that bad um doing that because that's what the community and family is here to do on like you know this this very important juncture of your life like i would say you know sometimes you you feel weird calling favors but this is the favor that you definitely want to call because you you need all the support in the recovery. So having more hands on deck is always, always better than having lesser. Um, we split up um, things like, you know, creating food, um, taking care of the baby. We ran on shifts. We made sure as much as possible, like, you know, people were getting enough sleep um, and recovering um, from that. Um, and so we we actually tried to really, uh, you know, create a framework and like a calendar that worked for everyone while managing workloads. And today, you know, I'm back at work. Um, and I would say, you know, the things that I did uh, before to set myself up for success are, are definitely working. Um, very grateful in having, you know, managers, teams that are so helpful in like the return to office perspective um, that, you know, the the aspect of managing a baby and at the same time, like being a new mom, having like childcare needs now, like it's it's quite it can be very overwhelming and it is overwhelming. Um, it, you know, it's what it's part of the journey and part of the challenge that I love taking on. I always love taking on new challenges. Um, so this is like the current challenge that Harsh and I have taken on. And, you know, if you guys have a podcast on uh, what happens post-birth childcare, like, you know, we would probably, once we are a little bit more aware of uh, what we're, what we're in, we'll happy to share our, our two cents there. <laughs>
just grateful. Like there, are, there's just so much um, wealth of information that you both shared, and then just um, hearing how you you uplifted each other and just worked through everything is just it's beautiful. I know we've used that word a lot on this episode, but it is. It's all just beautiful. Um, and just, I mean, like you know, Danny and I say all the time, this 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 podcast is a, is a place for learning. And then just being able to take many of the things you said into how we're able to care and prepare families is just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you for giving us a platform. Yeah, thank you for having us. Is there anything else from all that goodness that you would want to leave listeners with, either from your birth? Um, just things that you're thinking about now that you, that you would want to leave them with. Well, hear this podcast, like this, you know, what you ladies are doing is amazing. <laughs> Definitely get on the birth stories. Yeah. The, the, I think the more, uh, the more you listen, the more knowledgeable you are and the more informed you are and therefore the more confident you are. Yeah, um, we did engage with quite a few books. Uh, we 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 tried to borrow some books um, on like week by week pregnancy journeys, and I thought like the one that we got was uh, useful for a non birthing partner because it's like a very thin book that does a week it's by not week. overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, it's very slimmed down version of like what to expect like in your birthing partner's journey. Like, what is she going to go through? Like, what uh, by by the week, which was very nice, and it went all the way to like postpartum um and it's got a good balance of promoting advocating for natural births but also helping you understand why interventions are needed when they're needed yeah so it's, i feel like it's got a good balance of that yeah i would say exercise like you know in upfront invest in exercise um you know know your body before you get pregnant so you, that... you use a book called bumps and burpees right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i would so say funny. like you know definitely know your body before it gets pregnant if you can so that when you are pregnant you slowly kind of know where to like take take things off um because you don't want to push your body too hard um start saving like this journey is expensive <laughs> um start borrowing things like plan ahead uh you know uh there is a lot coming your way from a financial aspect um and you know you th there are ways that you can definitely get ahead of that journey um uh, on that spectrum so what else um I would say the other podcast that I really liked was evidence-based birth um it gave me a very balanced way of thinking about the different things that we often hear, like raspberry tea leaf, like, does that really help uh, induce labor? Like, or, um, you know, all these like little things that the old wife's tales, they actually go into the research and like show you like what does and what doesn't. Um, so that's been, that was very nice. And then we also got the built to birth package, um, which was useful in just, you know, giving us the full spectrum of like the birthing aspect um so yeah i would say those would be the top uh top resources that we have thank you thank you so much thanks for listening to birth stories in color to hear this show and other episodes head to birthstoriesincolor.com 